You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we do praise you that you are the giver, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. We praise you that you have given uh, the scriptures that make known to us your grace in the person of Jesus. So we pray now that you would illumine by the power of your spirit, the reading and preaching of your word today, that we would be those who hear, who listen, who receive, and who respond with our whole lives, with obedience and with love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. Really happy to see you. If you're visiting with us, want to um, especially welcome you. We have been um, in a sermon series this fall, sort of a teaching series on the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the three books in the Old Testament called Wisdom Literature, um, ancient forms of wisdom that have remarkably relevant application to the lives in our world today. So we're calling this particular series How to Be Human. Uh, because essentially what the teacher, or we've been calling him Kohelet, which is just basically Hebrew for teacher, is doing is he's asking the question, given how broken and befuddling our world is, how can we live good lives of meaning and purpose? How, how, do, we, how do we live as good humans in this world where so much seems to go so terribly wrong? Um, so he's been on a search to figure out that, to figure out meaning, and today um, he's searching again. This time he's exploring the concept of wealth and money um, and riches, and so that's what we're looking at today. So if you, wanna, if you have your Bibles or an app on your phone, you want to open it up to Ecclesiastes 5. I'm going to be kind of working systematically through the text today, so welcome you to um, have that open. So Linnea Walker is going to read to us today. Welcome, Linnea. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given to them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. 
They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what, what you would say if someone were to ask you, what is the greatest threat to Christianity in our culture today? What is the greatest threat? I wonder what you would say. I, I'm, I'm sure some people would say um, secularism or humanism or fundamentalism or liberalism. But interestingly, um, Craig Blomberg, a well-known American New Testament scholar, um, wrote this. He said, the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not Marxism, Islam, New Age, secularism, postmodernism, or humanism. The greatest Danger to Western Christianity today is the pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. Materialism. Now, you, you, you might argue with that. You might disagree with that. But I think he has a pretty good case, uh, especially considering that 25% of Jesus' teaching, a full quarter of Jesus' words, was given to the dangers of money and wealth. And that's a lot especially if you consider that that was 2,000 years ago. And I wonder what he would have to say to us, us here today living in the wealthiest society in history. To use a a word popularized by a 2001 book written by some sociologists, we are all infected with affluenza, which is, quote, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. So, and this is true for all of us, whether you are a kid watching YouTube videos or commercials on TV, or whether you are an adult uh, worrying about your retirement portfolio, uh, this is a very serious condition, affluenza, that every single one of us is infected by. And Kohelet would not be surprised by any of this. He's been on a search for meaning. He's been trying out different things, different experiences that humans use to construct purposeful lives for themselves. He's tried out uh, work. He's tried out pleasure. He's tried out wisdom. And today he is trying out wealth and money and riches. And you will not be surprised that he discovers that this too is, is what? Hebel, meaningless, you know, vapor, smoke. But he takes it a step further because not only does he say that money and wealth fail to deliver uh, the meaning that humans need, but he actually says that money threatens the very destruction of our lives. That this is not just vapor, this is poisonous vapor. This is not just smoke, this is smoke that will choke you to death. That's how serious he is about this one. So let's look at it. Let's look first at the problems of wealth. Because what Kohelet observes is that far from bringing lasting meaning, increased wealth actually introduces all kinds of problems into our lives. And if you look at the text, you'll see that verses 8 through 17 is actually his systematic deconstruction of all the ways that human beings tend to use wealth for significance and security. So let's just kind of work through. He identifies six different things. I'm just going to touch on each one of them. The first is, the first problem that wealth often brings is oppression and injustice. Look at verse eight. He says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. Now you may wonder at first glance what this has to do with money, but what he's saying is this, it shouldn't 
surprise us when we see oppression and injustice in a society, especially against the poor, because decisions, what decisions often flow down from people in positions of greater wealth, greater power, and greater privilege. He said, don't be amazed because this is the way the world works. And the wealthier you get, the easier it is, he says, to become disconnected from the needs of of the poor. The higher you move up the ladder socially, the harder it is, the easier it is to be blind to the concerns of the last, the least, and the lost. I mean, just I, I was just reflecting on this in my own life, um, just my own personal story. Um, some of you know that for the first 13 years that we lived in Richmond, we lived in the east end of Richmond in um, a more economically depressed neighborhood. We were part of an urban ministry there helping to plant a church third called Eastern Fellowship. Um, and, um, and, you know, just by nature of where I lived, um, every day I had to, 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 to actually see. I had to see poverty. I had to see um, government housing. I had to see homelessness. I had to see um, profound racial inequity in our city every single day. And so I had to think about it. I had to face it. I had to grapple with it. I even had to think about my own relationship to it. But then, you know, about three or four years ago, when I got this job, senior pastor, I moved, you know, to the, we moved to the near West End, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's, we live in a good neighborhood. It's, it's fine to live where I live. And yet, because of where I live, I am now insulated from the needs of the most vulnerable in our city. And I actually have to make an effort to see them or even care. And this is what wealth and power can do is that it insulates us, separates us, blinds us from the real needs in our communities that doing justice requires us to address. And what Koalit says is this separation and the apathy and the blindness it creates is itself a form of oppression and injustice. That's the first thing, the first major problem that increases of wealth creates. The second um, is dissatisfaction. Look at verse 10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Again, I was uh, deeply um, convicted by this. I I reflected on the fact that I'm 46 now, um, and I've been working at this church since 2005. And when I started working here, I probably, I, I make many times more money, my salary, than when I first started working here. Um, and yet, why do I feel exactly the same way about my money as I did back then? that I don't have enough of it. You know, Rockefeller himself said, one of the richest men in America, said when he was asked once, how much money do you need? He said, just a little bit more. Money has this self-consuming quality, doesn't it? It's like a, the more you make, the more you have, and the more you feel like it you, you need because it feeds on itself. And all of us are familiar with these cycles of consumption. We earn, um, and then we spend, and then we, when we earn and spend, we then buy bigger houses and nicer cars and better lawn equipment and move into nicer neighborhoods and membership to the clubs. And, and then you have to actually earn more in order to sustain that lifestyle. And all the while, you feel like you can't make ends meet, even though you yourself have created the pressure yourself for yourself by your own consumptive choices, which sounds like a form of insanity, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, One bond salesman in the Wall Street boom of the 1980s says, you don't get rich in this business, you just attain new levels of relative poverty. Um, And which which is actually true. Like empirically, statistically, globally, nearly every one of us in this room is rich compared to the global economic spectrum. But my guess is very few of you feel rich 
Very, very few of you. Because we usually think that the rich and the wealthy are other people. You know, there's always someone that we can compare ourselves to. There's always someone with, with a more extravagant lifestyle, with a bigger house, a better car, um, bigger homes. It's easy to feel like this is just someone else's problem, that they're the rich ones. Me, I'm just getting by. And so the cycle continues, and we never stop to ask ourselves the hard and important questions about our lifestyles, evaluating what we may actually need. We just stay on this treadmill of dissatisfaction, hunger for more. That's the second problem. Problem number three, uh, anxiety and restlessness. He says, verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. This is a simple formula. He's saying the more you have, uh, the more anxiety comes with it, or to quote the great um, rapper of East Coast hip-hop fame, Notorious B.I.G., mo' money, mo' problems, right? So (laughs) one car... Uh, one set of car problems. Two cars, two car sets of car problems. The more you add, the more it can go wrong. Accumulation complicates life, right? Um, it creates bills, it creates creditors, it creates more accounts to manage, more possessions to maintain, increasingly more to worry about and to clutter your life. Um, just a few months ago, I bought a ring doorbell because all my neighbors had one, so I thought I was supposed to have one too. And I saw one on sale and then I bought it and realized I have to subscribe to this service. And now my phone is constantly notifying me about all these randos who are just walking by my house and I have to charge it every few weeks. And I will tell you, my life has not improved. And (laughs) I just have something else to pay for and something else to worry about. And in so many ways, like our accumulation actually creates more anxiety and complications instead. I I had a friend, I used to live in the UK, I had a friend from the UK come visit and I was showing him around Richmond and he just kept remarking, you know, what is up with all these gates and guards and, and, and security systems and protection devices? He said, it feels to me like these people are imprisoning themselves in their own wealth. As Rockefeller also said, I would give all that I have now if I could experience the contentment in the days when I was making just a few dollars a week. Anxiety. Number four, relational isolation. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. This is, this is, this is sad. I mean, I, I, I can actually remember years ago um, sitting with a very um, wealthy entrepreneur who was a Christian, and he disclosed to me that he does not know who his real friends are, that he doesn't actually feel that he can trust anyone, and he actually wondered, I don't even know if I can trust you. And even if you would be sitting here, if I did not have the capacity that I have. I slowly watched him drift away from his most important relationships, even his own family. Verse 17 is even more pessimistic. It says, all his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Kohelet envisions a wealthy man eating by himself in a dark room, um, fretting and worrying, isolated from human community um, alone. It's a very sad image. You know, eating is a, is a communal event, a communal image. And instead, he sees that increased wealth leads to increased isolation, that the wealthier we get, the more self-sufficient we become, and the less connected to and dependent on others. Uh, the reality of this is expressed in the physical landscapes of our neighborhoods. The, the wealthier you get and the more you move up the social ladder, you move, we move into neighborhoods um, with larger lots, that have greater separation from our neighbors. 
Um, and actually, you can get to the point where you never actually have to engage with anyone at all. You can walk right from your house into your garage, into your car, out of your neighborhood to work, and then come right back into your garage, back into your house again, and never interact with anyone at all. Contrast that with, you know, maybe the first apartment you lived in with thin walls in which your neighbor's business became your business, whether you liked it or not. And still today, many lower income neighbors often learn to rely on each other and foster community in the way that wealthy people are just simply incapable of doing. It's great to have a vacation home, but consider how that actually may be alienating you from your friends, your family, the people that are most important to you, your church community, you're out of touch with problems of others. Um, you, you stay in a high-paying, demanding job telling yourself you're doing it for your family to put your kids through college. But in the meantime, I've seen this happen. You lose all meaningful connection with your own children. Is that worth it? Number five, insecurity. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Again, Q. Kohelet envisions a, a man who has hoarded um, his wealth to secure the livelihood of his family only to face economic destruction instead. And, and this is what wealth does. It, it actually, uh, it, it lures you into a sense of control over your life. That the more of it you have, the more secure you feel about yourself and your family's future, deluding you into thinking that you can actually protect yourself against the harm in the world. But Kohelet warns, money can no more protect you from the unpredictability of the world than you can protect yourself from an incoming truck by covering your body with a blanket. That's how insecure and illusory this is. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, all these forms of material security do not endure. They, these treasures are susceptible to, do you remember, moths, rust, deterioration, money does not keep death away, clothes do not keep you from wrinkling, aging, retirement funds do not repair your estranged relationships. These things will not protect you. They will not keep you from tragedy. They do nothing to heal your soul. They cannot because they are not God, nor will they make you into God. And yet money more than anything else deceives us into believing that it gives us power to control our lives and our future. It's a lie. It's a lie from hell. If you ever worry about money, if you ever feel a little better on the second Friday when that money drops into your account and you feel like you're going to be okay, it's probably a sign that in some way you look to your wealth as a source of security, but Kohelet says, it will fail you. And that leads to the final problem, death. Verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. As everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. As he has often remarked, Death is the great equalizer. Life is a journey between two moments of nakedness. Have you thought about that? <laughs> when you're born, when you're dead, and then what happens to your wealth? Well, it's a problem. You don't know because you're dead and you have no control over what happens to it after you die. John Stott, my mentor, um, used to tell the story about a woman um, who is attending the funeral of a very wealthy Londoner who was known to have uh, a great estate. And she was very um, uh, curious about the size of his estate. And so she approached the minister after the service and said, excuse me, Reverend, can you tell me what did he leave? And the minister wisely said to her, 
uh, he left everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Nothing for him is left. So this is, this is a stark assessment. Like wealth and the increase of money has many serious problems, many serious dangers, oppression, injustice, dissatisfaction, anxiety, restlessness, relational isolation, insecurity, death. Please take, take, take this seriously. Because everyone in this room, some of us are more infected than others, but every single one of us is infected by affluenza. And the most dangerous thing is you hardly ever know you're sick. I mean, y'all, this is crazy. I, this is the most serious threat to our souls. This is why Jesus spent so much time talking about the dangers of wealth. This is the most serious spiritual threat to our souls. And yet in my near 20 years of being a pastor, people have come to me for so many problems with help for so many things. And not once has anyone ever come to me saying, pastor, I need help. I love money. Pastor, I need help. I'm captive to greed. I have an inordinate attachment to my possessions. Can you please help me? No one's ever said that. Why? Because it's a silent killer. You know, you know when you're committing adultery. You don't say, oh, you're not my wife. You know, you don't, you know, you know, you, you know when you're harboring hate, you know, in your, in your soul, you know these things. But nobody knows it when greed, it's a silent killer. It comes upon you. And then ultimately, before you're even aware of it, it poisons your soul. This is why Thomas Carlyle, the great historian, says, for a hundred people that can bear adversity, there is hardly one that can bear prosperity. Charles Spurgeon said, continued worldly prosperity is a fiery trial. Not suffering, prosperity is a fiery trial that if you don't attack it with incredible intentionality, it will bring great destruction to your soul. So what are we gonna do about this, dear family? Because let's just face it, we're, we're, we're a wealthy congregation and we're sick with affluenza. What are we gonna do? Well, you would expect Kohelet at this point, given his negativity, to say, Run away, <laughs> shun money, uh, take a vow of poverty, go live in a cave. But that's not what he does. In classic Kohelet fashion, you know, he, the first set of verses that we just looked at, it's almost like he was addressing money within the secular frame. But now suddenly he makes a turn and he brings the God of Israel into the picture and he changes his perspective, speaking more positively. He says this in verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good that it is good for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Notice how many times he uses the word give. Did you see that? Give, give, give. When God gives someone the days of life God has given, this is a gift of God. What he's doing is he's tapping in to this wonderful longitudinal theme throughout scripture that affirms that God is both the creator and the giver of all things. So if you go way back in Genesis 1 and you reread that story, what do you hear again and again? God creates, God blesses, God gives. So in Genesis 1, verse 26, we see, or 29, God says, I have given you 
every green plant. I have given you every tree in the garden. I have given you every plant for every beast of the earth. God is the giver. And so the Bible says that everything in our lives, our, our, our lives, our breath, our time, our bodies, our sleep, our families, our relationships, our money, our possessions, our, our, the conditions of our life, the fact that you were born in the family and the position that you were born in rather than as in the mountains of Tibet in the 13th century, you know, your capacity to produce and create wealth, every single thing is a gift, unearned, undeserved, a gift from the super abundant, generous heart of God. So God is the owner and the giver of all good things, of everything. What does that make you? The receiver. Or to use the word that we love around here, it makes you a steward. You know, a steward, a steward is, it comes from, it's an old English word. It comes from, from sty, which means house, ward, which means keeper, keeper of the house. A steward was someone who was put in charge of an estate of a wealthy owner. And so a steward was the person that was put in charge over the domestic affairs of what the owner possessed. So Randy Alcorn says this, a steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he manages. It's his job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets then carry out his will. So in the biblical worldview, God is the creator. God is the owner. God is the giver. Nothing belongs to you. Your entire life is a life of stewardship because everything belongs ultimately to God. And so Kohelet is calling forth this biblical vision. He's not, he's not rejecting money. He's saying, change your relationship to it. Change your relationship to your wealth. Stop seeing yourself as the owner. Start seeing yourself as the steward. The one who's been given all these rich gifts of God. And this is a radically different approach to money and possessions and wealth that could radically change us in the way that we are living. How would it change it? Well, let's just mention a few things. First of all, it would foster in us gratitude. Gratitude, right? A steward, notice how Kohelet advises us to enjoy our lives. Did you hear that? I mean, this guy, you thought he's such a sourpuss, but now he's saying like, enjoy, enjoy, <laughs> right? Like, enjoy your life, enjoy what we have, recognizing it that they're a gift of God. When you live like an owner, Everything's up to you. I got to provide for my family. I got to take care of my stuff. I got to protect myself from the, the future, right? And if you have stuff, if you have possessions, you have a car, you have a house, you have stuff, there's nobody to thank because you earned it. It's mine, right? That's the mentality of an owner. But a mentality of a steward is so radically different because you realize that everything in your life is a gift, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat, the friends you have, the community, the family, the food. Nothing is earned. Nothing is deserved. All of life is grace. And gratitude is a discipline of noticing all that God super abundantly gives. Gratitude is not a natural disposition. It's not passive. It is a learned habit. It is a discipline of awareness, attentiveness, to God's grace in his many provisions in your everyday, simple, daily life. Let me just give you an example of this. Um, I shared this with some of you recently, but um, Sarah, my wife, is a public health nurse. And a couple years ago, in the height of the pandemic, she, she was running a vaccination clinic in a poor neighborhood in Richmond. 
And I, I had to go for some reason, I can't remember why, but I was, I was grumpy that I had to be there. It was a hot day. I was standing outside this community center, just waiting and waiting and waiting. And the security guard came out. He said, you know, do you need help with anything, sir? I said, no, I'm just waiting for my wife inside. So just out of his own kindness of heart, he went and got a chair and he brought it over and he put it in a little patch of shade and he said, you know, have a seat. You can just sit here while, while you wait. I said, thanks. And this little old lady was walking by, watching this happen, this little old lady. And she turned to me and she just said, how good it is of God to give you that chair. How good it is of God to give you that chair. Now, for me, it was like suddenly the sun parted through the clouds and I suddenly saw the presence and provision of God. It took this woman, this spiritual ninja, I will say, <laughs> who in her entire life, I mean, it was clear that she had not lived an easy life. It was clear that she was a person um, who had not grown up with much privilege. And yet because of her fostering an attentiveness, she was able to see, she was able to see the gifts of God in the everyday life, even a stranger receiving a chair. That takes habit. That takes discipline, right? I always consider gratitude as something that happened to you when a positive circumstance occurred. But Paul in the New Testament suggests by commanding it, give thanks in all circumstances. He suggests the opposite of the discipline of gratitude in the midst of any circumstance is what leads to joy. So in other words, it's not the happy person who is grateful. It's the grateful for person who becomes happy because their eyes begin to be increasingly open to the super abundant provision of God. Right? So that's the first major difference is that when you can do this, you, can turn, you, you live life as a steward instead of owner. You turn from being an anxious, entitled owner to a joyful, grateful receiver. That's the first thing. Second, simplicity. Look what Kohel advises. He says, here's what you should do. Accept one's lot and find satisfaction in your toil. A steward is someone who accepts their lot, who accepts that they have enough, who accepts that they have what they need and they don't need to scramble for more because they trust that the owner will give them what they need when they need it, right? Simplicity is a spiritual practice that aligns with this with the aim of loosening your inordinate attachments to accumulation and consumption in order to be more free and to live for what really matters. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, um, told this great parable about um, a rich man traveling through uh, a country road late at night, and he was in a beautiful, uh, wealthy carriage, and he had filled the carriage with bright lanterns, and it was comfortable, and here, cocooned in his comfort, Kierkegaard said, he could not see the beautiful stars. He was blinded from it. And yet the, the, the poor peasant walking on the road without a carriage, without a lantern, could look up and see the glorious explosion of the starry night. So, so when, our, when our lives are filled with all these lanterns, we make our lives so complicated, so comfortable, so satisfactory, so pleasant, so easy. But in the process, we become blinded to the stars. We miss the sight of the most simple beauties, the pleasures of the simple things of life, deep relationships, food, good cup of coffee. We distract ourselves, blind ourselves from what matters most. And so the practice of simplicity 
is an invitation to begin living for what actually matters, to deliberately limit your accumulation, um, to choose to live with less than you could actually live with, um, to create margin and space in your lives, to honor the resources of our very fragile planet, um, and to let go of the tangle of wants in your heart so that you can receive the simple gifts of God that can't be taken away from you. Eating, sleeping, walking, loving. John Stott, again, said, since our lives are spent between two moments of nakedness, it's best to travel light. <laughs> and actually, he did. I lived with him. I mean, he did. He, two suits, two pairs of shoes, gave most of his stuff away. One day, you're going to have to let go of everything, even your breath. And that will be the most radical act of simplicity because the importance of all the other stuff will truly be meaningless at that moment. And so simplicity embraces that reality today. Adele Calhoun says, learning to live simply prepares us for our last breath while cultivating in us the freedom to truly enjoy the gifts of here and now. So what's, what's one thing that you could do to intentionally limit your choices, right? Do you really need six different breakfast cereals? Um, do you really need 24 shirts? Do you, do you need that many outfits, right? Does that make you feel free? Or does that just fill you with complications and stir up a hunger for more? Next time you really have an urge to buy something, don't. Let's see what happens. Um, uncomplicate your life. Clean out the garage, your basement, closet, your attic. Go on a simple vacation. Eat more simply. Consider an area where you have overcomplicated your life and learn to let go, trusting that God is good and that he will provide you with what you need when you need it. Simplicity. Finally, um, generosity. A steward recognizes that they have been given these resources not for themselves, but for the master's benefit. Miroslav Volf says, um, we are not the final destination in the flow of God's gifts. You're not the final destination. You're the middlemen. The gifts flow to us, then they're meant to flow from us. Imagine you know, like you had a precious package to mail to a friend, and so you call the FedEx guy, and he comes to your door, picks up the package, and then goes home, rips it open, and keeps it himself. What would you say about that FedEx guy? He's a bad FedEx guy, right? <laughs> he's not doing what he's supposed to do. And yet this is what we do when we are captive to the lie of ownership. Money and wealth has not been entrusted to me for myself, for my own comfort, for my own luxury, my own advancement. Nothing God has given you is just for you. Randy Alcorn again says, abundance is not God's provision for you to live in luxury. It's his provision for you to help others live. God entrusts me with his money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom, his kingdom in heaven. So when you can grasp that you're a steward, not an owner, it completely changes your perspective. You're no longer asking, hmm, how much of my money will I, out of the goodness of my heart, give to charity or give to the church or give to God? Instead, you're asking, since all of this is actually God's, how would God want me to invest his money in the life of the world today? Right? You're working with somebody else's capital, y'all, somebody else's assets. It's not yours. Don't be a robber. It's his. And the steward is asking all the time, how can I use everything? Not just the little bits, but all of it. How can I use all of it for his work, his purposes, his mission 
in the world. Gratitude, simplicity, generosity. So let me close. What has Kohela discovered about money and wealth? It's a terrible thing to live for. Terrible. And, 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 and without thoughtful intentionality, wealth accumulation will lead to oppression, injustice, insecurity, dissatisfaction, isolation, and death. That's the bad news. The good news is when surrendered to God, acknowledging God as the giver and the owner, accepting your place as the receiver and the steward, you can change your whole relationship to your wealth. You can become those who, who are not living as entitled owners, but you can live gratefully, simply, generously. And none of this, of course, is possible in our own strength. We already talked about the external pressures, right? Every day um, you are pressured and prodded and poked to be more, have more, buy more, hoard more. Affluenza is the greatest pandemic in our society. But not only do we have those external pressures, we have the internal compulsions of our hearts, our sin, our selfishness, our demands that are constantly making us into owners instead of stewards, takers instead of givers. But the amazing gospel story is this, that God has come to rescue us from this prison, that he's come to do something about this in the person of Jesus. And God came, when God came, Jesus is the ultimate steward. Have you thought about that before? Jesus is the only human who's ever lived who has taken all that he had all that he was, every time, every breath, every part of his body, and he consecrated it fully to his father, giving himself fully over to the father's will. He's the great steward. Not only that, Jesus is the great giver. He gave everything that he had. What did Paul say about him? He said, he said though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus took the riches of his inheritance as the firstborn son of God and divested himself fully that you might have the eternal wealth of a place in the father's house. And when you receive this, this good news of Jesus as the steward for you, Jesus as the giver of you, it not only reconciles you to God, but it changes your heart. It changes your relationship to money. It changes your relationship to your stuff. It changes your relationship to, to, to possessions. You know in Christ you have all that you need. You know in Christ you have a good father. You don't have to take care of yourself anymore. You are never alone. You are always provided for. You have a good father who will always grant you what you need. The giver has set us free that we might become more like him. And so we can sing like the great hymn says, we give thee but thine own, whatever thy gift might be. For all we have is thine alone, a gift a gift, O oh Lord, from thee. That's your life. It's a gift. Let's, let's pray. We do thank you, loving God, that you are so generous as creator, as owner, as giver, that everything in our lives is a gift. Nothing is earned. We repent of our meritocratic hoarding thinking that we own this stuff. We've earned it. We deserve it. No, God, all of life is grace. And so we surrender it to you. And we pray that you would give us power through Jesus, through the great steward, the great giver, that in, with Christ in us, we would have the power to live like him, that we would live gratefully. We would live simply, that we would live generously, divesting ourselves for the poor, 
for the vulnerable, for the mission of the church in the world. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.